This is Crazy Captain Steven, here to introduce another five-part episode from the 1973-74 to 74 Mystery and Suspense radio show, Zero Hour, hosted by Rod Serling. This one is called A Die in the Country, Die as in D-I-E, a title I didn't get at first, but then realized it was a play on the expression A Day in the Country. The reliable theme of suburban dystopia is revisited as a well-intentioned couple moves from Boston to Wellesley, Massachusetts for a peaceful place to raise their first child they are expecting. But, like playwright David Mamet's State and Maine, here in Wellesley we unwillingly find ourselves on State and Insane, handed a bitter cocktail of poison pen letters, obscene phone calls, and a possible murder, with a splash of gratuitous neighborly wife-swapping. Well, this was, after all, the 70s. A Die in the Country stars Peter Marshall, now 88, best known as the jovial game show host on Hollywood Squares. Listen as a contestant chooses Vincent Price, who Peter questions. This was one year prior to the Zero Hour episode, which was in 1972. Uh, I'll go to Vincent Price. That's maybe a good move. All right. Uh, you're a fly. I certainly am. <laughs> <laughs> will you be? Uh, will you more likely be hit if someone swats a little ahead of you or a little behind you? Peter Marshall's original last name was Lecoq, and his son Pete Lecoq, now 62, played Major League Baseball for the Chicago Cubs from 1972 to 76 and for the Kansas City Royals from 77 to 80 as a third baseman and outfielder. In 2010, Pete Lecoq co-managed a local ball team owned by actor Kevin Costner called the Lake County Fielders, north of Chicago, for the North American League, but it only lasted two years. Lake County is where Jack Benny's Waukegan is located. Co-starring in this Zero Hour is Susan Strasberg, who portrays Peter Marshall's dutiful wife. She would prefer Newt to confine his investigations to Boston and to stop suspecting their new Wellesley neighbors of possible wrongdoing. An accomplished actress, Susan Strasberg was nominated in 1956 at age 18 for a Tony Award for her starring role on Broadway as Anne Frank. The play itself won the Tony that year, thanks in large part to her. Yet Susan Strasberg, who one year earlier graced two covers of Life magazine and the cover of Newsweek, and appeared regularly in film and TV, was often overshadowed by her iconic father, Lee Strasberg. You might recognize him in the Oscar-nominated role as gangster Hyman Roth in The Godfather Part Two modeled after real-life mobster Meyer Lansky, who just after the movie opened, phoned Lee Strasberg to congratulate him on his fine performance. More importantly, he led the Actors Studio, the same studio featured on the TV show hosted by James Lipton. Lee Strasberg believed that actors would find success in the method of recalling emotions from their own lives to illuminate their stage and film roles. Finding that success via Strasberg's method were Steve McQueen, Sidney Poitier, Anne Bancroft, Dustin Hoffman, Joanne Woodward, Paul Newman, and other larger-than-life actors, including Marlon Brando, 
who stated that Strasberg taught him nothing and that it was instead director Ilya Kazan who taught him the method to his madness. This is Crazy Captain Stephen signing off. The Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, The Hollywood Radio Theater, presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tobias Wells' neo-Gothic tale of small-town terror. A die in the country. Starring Peter Marshall. Susan Strasberg. And Andrew Duggan. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. City living has become increasingly troublesome. Our cities are crowded, high-pitched, and in many instances dangerous. No one knows that better than the cop. This week, a story of a handsome young couple in search of rural peace and quiet. Newt Severson, detective first grade, Boston Police. Married one year. Wife, Brenda, seven months pregnant. They've heard so much about the beauty of life in the quaint New England countryside... The picturesque three-story Victorian house in the placid little college town of Wellesley seems the answer to their dream until they meet their neighbors, until they hear the town gossip and find themselves in the middle of a nightmare. Their story, A Die in the Country, begins after this word. Picture this. A small New England town. Green, rolling hills. Tidy houses along quiet, tree-lined streets. Respectable facades covering what manner of guilty secrets. A Cadillac glides solemnly around the corner. Purrs to a stop in front of an empty three-story Victorian house with silent, shuttered windows. Well, there it is, just as I described it. It's kind of odd-looking, isn't it? I mean, it seems off-balance. It's so tall and narrow with that high-peak roof. Three stories, Victorian architecture. It's most picturesque, but thoroughly modernized. The most up-to-date plumbing and wiring throughout. And you can see, freshly painted, and the new porch was just finished. Come along. I'll show you everything. 
Brenda was right. The house looked odd. Like the kind of house a child might draw. An oblong box set on end with a pointed roof on top. There was a big window in the front with small panes and a cement and cinder block porch around two sides with a wrought iron railing. The shutters were dark green and there was a post lantern at the end of the driveway, a pair of coach lanterns flanking the front door. A spacious yard and lots of trees and shrubbery. Mine here, our cat, would find it a whole new lease on life after his cloister days in a Boston apartment. It's a great deal of house and ground for the money. I agree. What's wrong with it? As I said, the owner had a sudden transfer out of town and must sacrifice. The reduced price bears no reflection on the condition of the property. It's really quite rustic. Oh, yes. Why, you even have a little patch of real woods on one side. Mm, this yard would be the devil to mow. It's nice and private. You can barely see the house next door through all that shrubbery. That place looks a little neglected. What kind of neighbors come with the house? Oh, that's Mercy Bird's place. Mercy Bird? She's a writer. Mystery story. Really? Yes. Lives alone there since her mother died and keeps pretty much to herself. She'll not be any bother to you, I'm sure. Sounds like fun living next door to a mystery writer. And you have a very distinguished neighbor across the street. Rudolph Wharton lives there. Sorry, but who's Rudolph Wharton? <laughs> oh, of course. You wouldn't know being from out of town. He's one of our select men. And I imagine he owns nearly half of Wellesley's most valuable real estate. I stand impressed. <laughs> Come along. I'll show you inside the house. Uh, truthfully, Mr. Severson, there aren't too many houses in Wellesley in your price range. I was ready to say we'd try someplace else in that case. I could feel my hackles rising. You see, I have very sensitive hackles. But... Brenda tugged at my sleeve as Mrs. Maynard turned the key in the lock and opened the door. A creaking door, just the right Victorian touch. Uh, our spring rain. A little oil will take care of that. As Mrs. Maynard led us around like sheep to the slaughter, Brenda exclaimed over all the pluses while I ticked off all the minuses. A winding staircase. Oh, it's just what I've always wanted. The woodwork needs repainting. Three big bedrooms, imagine. Two of them are going to have to be repapered. And a bathroom off each one. There isn't any John on the first floor. But as we followed in the wake of Mrs. Maynard's grand tour, treading on bright blue wool all the way, we came together on the view from the third floor studio bedroom. It was strictly as advertised. You see, I wasn't exaggerating a bit, was I? Oh, it's just lovely. Yeah, the view's great. I have to admit that. <laughs> and the bathroom has just been retiled. It's well heated. I just love it, honey. What do you think? Well, it needs a lot of work. I mean, I don't know when I'd have the time. Maybe we'd better keep looking. One week later, we signed the purchase and sales agreement. And one month later, we moved in. When you're in love with your wife and she's seven months pregnant, if she asks for the moon, you'll see what you could do. Don't worry, darling. We'll take our time. And it'll be fun making it really ours. Mine hair seems to have made it his with no problem. The second I let him out, he streaked off into the woods. Oh, this is going to be a beautiful place for the baby. 
All this grass and trees and lovely peace and quiet. It's downright bucolic. Oh, Newt, you do like it, too, don't you? Honey, it's going to be just what the doctor ordered for a tired city detective after slaving all day over a hot murder. Here you can leave murder to our next-door neighbor. What? Oh, Mercy Bird, the mystery writer. I wonder what she's like. Oh, so far, we've yet to get a look at any of our neighbors. They're being thoughtful, I imagine, giving us time to get settled. I still don't think it was too wise taking on a big move like this just before the babies do. Oh, it's just this thing. It'll keep me busy. No time to mope. Mope? About what? About looking like an old sack of lumpy potatoes, that's what. Oh. Hey, honey, let's let all these boxes go hang for the rest of the night. What do you say we try out our new fireplace? Take a little of the evening chill out of our new house. Right now, I feel like cuddling up in front of a cozy fire with an old sack of lumpy potatoes in my lap. Mm, you've been reading up on the care and handling of lumpy pregnant wives. What was that? What was what? I heard something at the door. I think someone's out there. Oh, for Pete's sake, it's probably just the cat. I forgot he was out. Relax, darling. I'll, I'll let him in. I thought so. Come on in, mine hair. Hey, wait a minute. What have you got there? Hey, what's, what's he got in his mouth? Oh, Newt, it's a squirrel. You mean what's left of a squirrel? Well, I guess we'll have to expect things like that. I mean, living out in the country. Oh, Newt, get it away. I think I'm going to be sick. I found it took me longer to commute from Boston to Wellesley than I'd figured. I'd landed smack in the middle of outgoing commuter traffic at 6 p.m., and while the pike moved well, the arteries on and off it were going slow. By the time I finally got home, I was on the irritated side, and finding a strange car parked in the middle of the driveway blocking my way did not improve my disposition. What the devil? Who was we, I wondered. At the moment, I wasn't in the mood for anybody. I made my way through the boxes of books and bric-a-brac in the living room into the kitchen where Brenda and a middle-aged woman with bleached blonde hair sat over coffee in the middle of boxes of pots and pans and dishes. Darling, this is Mrs. Parsons. You will have to forgive my coming before you've had a chance to settle, Mr. Severinson. But it's rather my job. I'm the official town greeter. Mrs. Parsons has brought us all kinds of lovely little gifts, goodies from all our local shops. It's our way of welcoming you to our little community. I'm sure you're going to find it a lovely place to live. Thank you. I think we'll enjoy it fine if we ever get some of this confusion cleared away. Well, this is a beautiful old house. And like most old houses in New England do, it has its share of history. Really? Well, you know, of course, that Catherine Lee Bates once lived here. Catherine Lee Bates? She wrote America the Beautiful. Oh, no, isn't that exciting? And Monsignor Davis actually died in one of the bedrooms upstairs. Died? Oh, don't worry. It was a perfectly natural cause as he was 88. Well, that explains it. But then I imagine you're far more interested in hearing about the living people of Wellesley, particularly your immediate neighbors. I imagine we'll be meeting them in time. Uh, the Farleys, at least. 
in the house catty corner across the street, they're quite congenial. But their children are something of a problem. Teenagers. Boys a college dropout, shiftless, long hair and a beard. And their girl is only in high school and already runs around with a very fast crowd. Heading for trouble, both of them, I'm afraid. Well, let's hope not. Your other two neighbors are inclined to keep their distance. Mercy Bird next door is a rider. I don't think a soul in town has ever been inside her house. And I'm sure you've heard of Mr. Wharton across the street. Yes, we have. He keeps quite to himself since his wife disappeared. Disappeared? Well, I don't mean in that sense exactly. Still, she did leave very suddenly, and no one seems to know where she went. Mrs. Parsons, are you implying that we have a town mystery on our hands? Perhaps a body buried in the cellar? Oh, good heavens, no, nothing like that. Why, Rudolph Wharton is Wellesley's most prominent citizen. Uh, my husband didn't mean that seriously, Mrs. Parsons. Oh, of course. You are a detective in the city, aren't you, Mr. Severson? I suppose detectives have their little jokes like all of us. I suppose so, Mrs. Parsons, but right now I'm afraid I'm just a tired city detective, so if you'll excuse me, I... Uh... Oh, as a matter of fact, I must be running along. I'm afraid I sometimes overextend these little welcoming calls of mine. Oh, not at all. It's been just lovely meeting you. I'll see you to your car. Mine's in your way. I was sure Mrs. Parsons had elected herself Wellesley's official greeter. It was the ideal job for the town gossip. Now, don't be too hard on her. It was nice to have someone to talk to. She didn't really say anything harmful. She wasn't catty. Uh, speaking of cats, have you seen ours? He made a beeline for the woods again. I just hope he doesn't bring home any more surprises. Honey, cats are hunters. It's their nature. Now, mine hair just never had a chance to do his thing before. He's always been such a gentle house cat. I never thought of him as a predatory animal. Well, he is. He just can't help it, that's all. Yes, he can. That's like saying that killers have to kill. They're two different things entirely. That, that's mine hair. It sounds like he's in trouble. Maybe this time he got hold of something too big for him. Now, you close your eyes until I see what it is. Whatever it is, don't let him bring it in. Well, hello there. It's all right, honey. It's only a dog, I think. I'm afraid my Algernon scared off your cat. He didn't mean to. Algernon loves cats. He's very affectionate, but he just doesn't realize how big he is. And I imagine our cat will learn to stay out of his way. I just wanted you to know that Algernon won't hurt him in any event. Algie wouldn't hurt a fly. I'm afraid that's more than can be said for our cat. I'm Newt Severson, and this is my wife, Brenda. Oh, delighted. I'm Mercy Bird, your next-door neighbor. Oh, we're very happy to meet you. Uh, you're a detective, I hear. You're a mystery writer, I understand. One thing sure about this town, it's a grapevine. I may have some questions to ask you sometime, Mr. Severson. Uh, do you mind? Questions? Research for my stories. Oh, sure, if it's something I know. Well, it's going to come in handy having a detective right next door. Look, isn't that another of our neighbors, Mr. Wharton, the select man? That's him, all right. The grapevine slipped up this time. Distinguished isn't the word. Handsome would be better. He's a looker, all right. I'll give you that. You sound as though you don't like Mr. Wharton very much, Miss Bird. Don't call me mercy. I never stand on ceremony. And as for Mr. Wharton, you're right. I don't like the man very much. Not at all, in fact. 
Now, come along. Algernon, come along. Let's finish our walk. Let our neighbor's cat get home in peace. <laughs> come by again, won't you? Oh, I will. Algernon insists on his walks. Ta-ta. Uh, goodbye, Miss Bird. Uh, uh, mercy. <laughs> Quite a character. Oh, I like her. So do I. But I wonder why she doesn't like the handsome, distinguished Mr. Wharton. When my first two days off came up, I had already managed to deal with most of the boxes. Confusion was gradually changing into order, and Brenda was busy at the sewing machine making new curtains for the big picture window. So I decided on a few hours busman's holiday and went downtown to look in on Wellesley's police station. There was an officer there named Dennehy that I once worked a case with. Great to see you again, Severson. What brings you out to Wellesley? Official business? No, no, we moved here, my wife and I. Ah. An old remodeled house on House Street. Ah, yes, I think I know the one. It's right across the street from... Uh, uh, Ralph Wharton, right. Right, right. He's really Mr. Big in this town, isn't he? Oh, he owns half of it. A block of stores, a medical building, a rest home, you name it. Say, you know, it may turn out to be a handy thing for us. You're living right across the street from Wharton. How's that? You can keep your eyes open. Somebody's got a big hate on for that guy. He's been getting a series of poison pen letters ever since his wife left him last January. Hate mail? Uh-huh. I heard Mrs. Wharton just disappeared. Nobody knows where she is. Ah, uh, the rumor factory. The truth is she went to California to live with her sister. We have a letter from her confirming this. Confirming it? Why was that necessary? Those letters Wharton has been getting. Wait a minute. I'll show you a photostat of one of them. You see? They're always pasted up words, cut from newspapers and postmarked from the next town over. Natick. Hey, you want to read it? You may think you can get away with your wife's murder, Rudolph Wharton, but you can't. I won't let you. Signed, The Great Eye. <laughs> the Great Eye? Sounds like somebody's playing a joke. You're new to Wellesley, my friend. Nobody, but I mean nobody, plays a joke on Rudolph Wharton. So, Dennehy asked me to keep my trained professional eye on the Wharton house for any sign of a suspicious character hanging about. It seemed that somewhere in Wellesley, a nut was running loose. Why would anyone make an accusation that could be so easily disproved? It doesn't make any sense. Crank letters don't have to make sense. They're a nuisance, to say the least, and any nut who writes them may be capable of, of almost anything. Well, it's probably just someone who resents Rudolph Wharton's position and power. If he were receiving a lot of anonymous love letters, I could understand it. What about our friend Miss Bird? She apparently doesn't think of him as any paragon. But you don't think she'd be writing him poison pen letters, do you? Mm, it would seem more her style to just go over and tell him off. But a cop learns quickly enough not to rule out anything. Oh, dear. What's that for? We moved to this lovely, peaceful little town to get away. Now you're going to be a detective even when you get home. Going to start looking at everyone with that suspicious cop nature of yours. Now, honey... Well, it's true. Only when there's a reason. Oh, there's always a reason. If you start looking for one, people aren't perfect. You can't start putting them under a microscope without seeing things that you shouldn't see. I didn't know you felt this way about my work. Oh, Newt, I don't mind you being a detective. I'm proud of you. 
But please, just try to remember that this is where we live now. It's not a police precinct. It's our home. I know that, but I mean... Oh, these people are our friends and neighbors, not suspects. All right. All right, honey. I'll remember that. Go ahead. Uh, whoever it is, you can let them in. I promise I won't turn a light in their face and demand that they confess all. Mercy. How nice. Come on in. Without Algernon this time, thought I'd spare your cat. Brought you a chocolate cake. One of the few things I can cook worth a damn. Mmm, it looks delicious. Chocolate cake, my favorite. Hey, the grapevine in this town is fantastic. Oh, how about some coffee, or what would you like to drink? Any buttermilk? Sorry. Nobody ever has. She's mother and I are the only buttermilk fanciers. How about having a beer with me? My mother wouldn't approve. It sounds good to me. Is your mother still living? I thought... No, 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 no. She's gone. But still, near enough to visit. It's a pleasant cemetery just outside the next town over. Natick. I go to see her often. Do you? You must miss her very much. Well, tell you the truth, we get along better now than when she was up and around. <sighs> When's the baby? Two more months. Got a good doctor, I hope. Mm-hmm. A very good Boston gynecologist, uh -huh. Dr. Abrams. Never heard of him. But then I never had any use for a gynecologist. <laughs> uh, Miss Bird, I mean, Mercy, uh, what is it about Mr. Wharton that you that you don't like? Oh, Newt. There's nothing I do like about Mr. Wharton. Nothing at all. Why? Because he thinks he's God Almighty. That's why. Somehow, despite the obvious evidence of her disdain for Rudolph Wharton, and now the added fact that she visited the next town of Natick regularly, I couldn't settle on Mercy Bird as the perpetrator of the poison pen letters. My cop's suspicious nature notwithstanding. Mercy Bird was a character, I thought, but not a nut. There was a big difference. There was something about the atmosphere in Wellesley, however, that made me glad to get back to the routine of my police job in Boston at the end of my two-day holiday. Captain Granger made sure my relief didn't last that long. Uh, how's the new place out in Wellesley, New? Oh, fine, Captain, fine. We're getting slowly but surely straightened out out there. I just had a call from Chief Torrance out there. Hmm? About that poison pen letter business? Poison pen letter? Wellesley has that going on, too? Why? What else is up? Obscene telephone calls. A whole epidemic of them. What? Yeah. That's some quiet little town you picked out for yourself, Everson. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense. A die in the country. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Tobias Wells, A Die in the Country, was adapted for radio by Shirley Gordon. Peter Marshall is Newt. Susan Strasberg is Brenda. And Andrew Duggan is the chief. Featured in the cast are Monty Margetts as Mrs. Maynard, Gene Bates as Mrs. Parsons, Mary Wicks as Mercy. Jerry Hausner as Dennehy, 
and Forrest Lewis as the captain. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weiskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tobias Wells' neo-gothic tale of small-town terror. A die in the country... Starring Peter Marshall, Susan Strasberg, and Andrew Duggan. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Detective Newt Severson and his wife Brenda are now in the process of adapting to their new surroundings. They've just moved to the quiet suburban town of Wellesley to await the birth of their first child. They've settled into a recently remodeled three-story Victorian house with a small patch of New England woods on one side and Miss Mercy Bird, mystery writer and the town recluse on the other. Directly across the street lives Wellesley's most prominent citizen, Town Selectman Rudolph Wharton. Subject of current gossip concerning the recent desertion of his wife. As Detective Severson soon learns, Wharton is being harassed by a series of anonymous poisoned pen letters accusing him of his wife's murder. Back at his desk at the Boston police station, Newt Severson finds that Precinct Captain Granger has a further crime report from Wellesley. Newt Severson is beginning to question the advisability of his move to the country. And he is yet to meet the rest of his neighbors. A die in the country will continue in a moment.
As if the threatening letters sent to Rudolph Wharton weren't enough, now we had even more to worry about. Obscene phone calls, a whole rash of them. Seems that some kook got hold of a Wellesley phone book. The calls are occurring systematically to nearly every house in your town. Every house? Yeah, and the caller seems to be working right through the book. Sometimes from the front of it, sometimes from the back. What ploy does he use? Well, he claims he's a doctor doing a survey. His research, he says, calls for answers to a number of questions. And he starts off nice enough. Pretty soon he's into the interviewee's sex life. Now, you know how it goes from there. Some of the ladies in your town are pretty upset. Mm, I can imagine. But why did Torrance call you? Uh, what's the Boston connection? Well, they've been tracing the calls when they could, but the caller has he's been jumping all over the place. Once they thought they had him, months ago when the calls first started, a series of them were traced to one Wellesley number. Turned out to be a family on an extended vacation. And the nut, whoever he is, had made an entry through a cellar window. Never stole anything, he just used the phone. They stake out the place? Yeah, sure. But, of course, by then, the guy had found himself another Michi. After that, he used pay booze, mostly. Once, even the telephone in the high school principal's office. And you don't know how he managed that. Huh. Don't tell me he's operating all the way out of Boston. Well, the latest calls have been traced to, of all places, a phone booth at the aquarium here. This one sounds like a real weirdo. Uh-huh. Aren't they all? Torrance wants us to stake it out, and since you have a personal interest in the town, I thought you'd be the man to do it. Has he established any time pattern? Well, the caller never phones at night or on the weekend. Only those hours when most women are home alone. That figures. Any voice description? Hmm? Nobody seems to agree. So maybe there's more than one nut at work. Anyway, he could be young, he could be old. Any chance do you think that he might really... Really be a doctor. Mm-hmm. There can be a twisted mind in any profession. You know as well as I do, anything's possible. Yeah. It's what my wife calls a cop's suspicious nature. She's already accused me of looking at everybody in Wellesley as a suspect. Hmm. Poison pen letters, obscene phone calls. Sounds to me you have reason to. So I waited out the day at the Boston Aquarium. But Wellesley's elusive sex nut continued to be... The one that got away. At Captain Granger's suggestion, I stopped by on my way home to report to Police Chief Torrance of the Wellesley Force. Yeah, well, I'm sorry that you got sent on a wild goose chase ever since. Today, he called from a pay booth in Dedham. You got a quick trace on him? No, he's aware we're putting traces on him. This time, he simply announced to his victim where he was calling from. One of those, the law be damned, catch me if you can. We'll catch him. Damn his dirty hide. Yeah, I've got a pregnant wife at home, alone all day. Just getting used to a new house in a new town. I wouldn't like to have her get a call from this creep. Well, every town's got its share of creeps, I guess. Danny, he told me he alerted you to the crank letters being received by Rudolph Wharton. Yeah, he asked me to keep an eye out since Wharton lives right across the street from us. All right, we'd appreciate that. There isn't any doubt about that letter you received from Mrs. Wharton confirming her whereabouts, is there? I mean, no suspicion of forgery or anything. Good God, man. Wharton is one of our selectmen, remember? Oh, all right, I'm a cop, I know better, so I placed a person-to-person call to her that I paid for myself. Didn't want it to show up on the department phone bills. Our selectmen have to approve all monthly vouchers. So you actually talked to her then? Well, she talked to me is more like it told me off for wasting my time tracking her down when I should be tracking down the people sending the letters. I'd like to have a copy of whatever record you have of the calls, and also photostats of the Wharton letters. Oh, you can get both of those from the clerk on your way out. Hey, now, I guess I'd better be getting home to my wife. Well, let's hope our women don't get the idea that there's some kind of fiend loose in our streets. 
But in point of fact, there is. It's me, honey. In the living room, Newt. Come on in and meet Mrs. Farley. The Farley's in the house catty corner across the street. I remembered Mrs. Parsons' rundown on them. Congenial couple with the two potential teenage delinquents. I walked in and saw a faded blonde in a red pantsuit sitting across the coffee table from Brenda. Gloria Farley, my husband, Newt. Pleased to meet you. I was just apologizing to your wife for not having come over sooner. I keep rather busy running a house with two children and holding down a job as well. I can understand that. I can't imagine it. Just the thought of a house with one baby and it scares me. In particular, I came to invite you and your wife to a party this Saturday evening. Our house. You'll meet my husband and a few friends. Oh, that sounds nice. It'll be our first evening out in Wellesley. Oh, then I'm glad I thought of it. Late but sincere, that's me. Thanks for asking us. <laughs> Just what we need, really. Good. Well, it's nice to have new neighbors, especially compatible ones. After Gloria Farley had left while Brenda put the finishing touches on a meatloaf dinner, I was going to get busy on that homework I'd asked Chief Torrance for. But instead, it seemed mine hair was late for his dinner, and Brenda asked me to go make sure he wasn't out squirrel hunting again. Here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Come on, mine hair. Hey, hey, where are you, cat? If you're looking for your cat, I think I may have him. Is this one yours? He is. <laughs> I didn't think he'd cross the street. My name's Severson. You're Mr. Wharton. Yes. <laughs> and it's my fault. I, I like cats, and he's a beautiful animal. I lured him over. He's not used to all this freedom. We've been apartment dwellers in Boston. Uh, you're a detective, I understand. That's right. Well, our crime here is of a of the minor varieties rule, and not much of it at that. That suits me. I get enough of it on the job. Care to come in for a drink? Oh, thanks, but I think my dinner's on the table. I'll have to take a rain check, if I may. Of course. Morton gave mine hair one final stroke and handed them to me. And as he did, I was struck by a curious resemblance. There was a look about their eyes that seemed the same, his and the cat's. I said goodnight and walked back across the street, running my hand thoughtfully across mine hair's glossy fur. I found myself wondering which look it had been, that of our formerly docile house cat or the killer it had become. Chief Torrance was right about the obscene phone call list. It was hard to find a handle. I charted the calls on a calendar and didn't come up with anything beyond my own frustration. I thought I had a thread, four calls on consecutive Mondays from a pay booth outside the Wellesley Railroad Station between the hours of 8.30 and 9.30. Could be a commuter. But then the pay booth number dropped from the list and was never used again. Sometimes he called four or five days in a row and another time a week went by without a complaint. Of course, maybe that was only a time when those women he called hadn't bothered to report it. That was too often our problem. On the one hand, there were the cranks who bothered us about nothing, and on the other, there were always those who came up against real crime and kept it a big, dark secret, even from the police. By the time Saturday night came, I was ready for that party at the Farley's and curious about who was going to be there. Hello, Severson. Come in and name your poison. 
Gloria Farley beckoned us into the high-ceiling living room and gestured us toward the bar set up on top of a baby grand piano. Obviously, the Farleys were more drinkers than music lovers, and, as it turned out, drama buffs. All of the people invited were members of the local little theater group, a kind of unisex couple appropriately named Chris and Christine, a second couple, the Kletz, Harvey and Angel, and Dolly Celine, a buxom redhead who instantly established her status as a widow in a plainly seductive tone of voice. Then we briefly met the Farley children, Delilah and Greg. I say briefly because they were both obviously eager to get out of the house. Perfectly normal for two teenagers when their parents are throwing a party. However, Gloria Farley was perturbed with them for rushing off in front of company. Delilah, I want you home at a decent hour, do you hear? And Greg, don't be in such a hurry. Please drive slowly. Do you have your house key? I never want to stay home anymore. Oh, here's Arlen, my husband. There was a sudden whir of a motor, and we followed Gloria Farley's gaze to the top of the stairs. At that moment, a chair device came gliding down the staircase bearing Arlen Farley, a big-chested man with a full head of wavy white hair and a wide smile that revealed a mouthful of sparkling white teeth. At the foot of the stairs, he rose from the chair and walked toward us. I had a coronary last year, and the doctor recommended this chariot. It's kind of fun, <laughs> and it makes a great entrance. Very impressive. These are our new neighbors, Arlen, Brenda and Newt Severson. I'll fix your ginger ale. Ah, thanks, Eddie. Yeah, to get off the hard stuff. Cigarettes, too, the penalty for a misspent youth. Uh, Gloria tells me you're a cop. Detective. Boston police. What's your business? A prosthetics. False teeth. You ever need a pair of choppers, I'm your man. In fact, I just happen to have a sample right with me. For a moment, I thought he was referring to his own dazzling smile. But instead, he reached into his pocket and brought out a pair of those clicking false teeth they sell in joke stores. Brenda gave a start and backed away from me. I didn't blame her. They really looked more sinister than funny. Oh, Arlen, put those silly things away. And for goodness sake, I'm sure we have more interesting things to talk about than false teeth. I do. I bet no one can guess what happened to me the other day. All right, then. I'll tell you. Got one of those dirty phone calls. Oh, Dolly, how awful. Well, maybe it wasn't so awful. Maybe Dolly enjoyed it. Arlen! <laughs> oh, don't pretend to be so shocked, Gloria. I did enjoy it for a while until... Well, he did go a little too far. You mean you just hung on and let him keep talking to Well, you? at first I thought he was legitimate. He said he was a doctor. Dr. Venable, he said. Uh, Mrs. Celine. Dolly. Please, Mr. Severson. Did you report the call to the police? Why, No. Should I have? When did you say this happened? I, exactly. I mean, can you remember? Um, I guess it must have been the day before yesterday. Sometime in the afternoon. I certainly don't remember the time exactly. It wasn't that important. Uh, what did he say to you? I mean, uh, well, why did you think it was legitimate? Well, Christy asked for Robert, my late husband, you know. His name's still in the directory. And then he explained he was interviewing married women or women who've been married for survey. Hmm. What kind of questions did he ask? Yeah, doll, what kind of questions did he ask? Arlen, this isn't funny. <laughs> to start with, just ordinary questions, like how long I'd been married and how long we'd dated beforehand, just things like that. And then what? Then he began asking some very personal things. 
I mean, he wanted to know every little detail. I'll bet. So finally I asked him, is this necessary? And he said, oh, yes, it's a very important part of the survey. And you bought that? I explained that all the information I was giving him would be fed into a computer and be strictly anonymous. And then he told me if I'd answer all the rest of his questions, he'd put me on his paid subject list. He said persons who are particularly helpful to him get paid. <laughs> I'll bet. Arlen, will you stop saying that? So then you answered all the rest of his questions, huh? Yes, some. Good God, Dolly, how could you? Perfectly strange man over the telephone, doctor or not. And they finally got so bad, I said to him, look, what are you? A dirty old man. And, uh, what did he say to that? There was a long silence. I thought I'd made him angry, and then suddenly he laughed. He had quite a pleasant laugh, and he said, Mrs. Celine, I'd like to meet you. Dolly, you, you didn't. Well, of course not. I told him that I wasn't going to answer any more questions either, not even for money. Then did you hang up on him? Finally. No. He thanked me and hung up himself. He thanked you? That was nice. He did have a pleasant laugh. He really did. Maybe he was legitimate. What kind of speaking voice did he have? Can you describe it? Mm, Deep. Kind of silky. Well, to put it plainly, he had a sexy voice. The only way to describe it. Dolly. I think, Mrs. Celine, you'd better tell all of this to the police. Mr. Sevenson. Newt. You're a policeman, aren't you? And I've just told it all to you. Oh, what a dreadful woman. Uh, you mean Mrs. Celine? Just call me. Dolly, you big, handsome policeman. Hey, you weren't jealous, were you? Oh, jealous of her? Imagine going on and on with that kind of telephone conversation. Honey, she's a widow without a man. She must be very lonely. Oh, she wasn't lonely tonight. You spent practically the entire evening with her. I wanted to find out all I could about the phone conversation. I'll bet. Come on, Brenda. What's gotten into you? You never act like this. Well, I've never had reason to before. Of course, I suppose I really shouldn't blame you. It can't be very exciting going to bed every night with an old sack of potatoes. Aha! So that's it. Oh, darling. I don't care how pregnant you get. You'll always look better to me than any voluptuous redhead. Oh, Newt. And you don't have to worry about Dolly Celine. She isn't my type, first of all, and I promise you I won't ever see or talk to her again. Yes, uh, what is it, Mrs. Celine? Dolly? It turned out all Dolly Celine wanted was more attention. The woman was lonely, perfect prey for a telephone nut. She was also more frightened about the call than she acted at the party. She knew she had done a foolish thing, so again I referred her to the Wellesley Police Department. Said a polite goodnight and hung up. My attention at the moment was in full demand upstairs in my own bedroom. The next week or so passed more or less serenely at home while my job provided all the excitement I wanted. And sometimes more than I asked for. When I got home tonight, I was really ready to put my feet up with a beer. But I didn't mind at all when I found company in the kitchen. It was Mercy Bird, and we hadn't seen much of her lately. Busy on a book, that's why. Nobody sees me when I'm writing. How's your cat, by the way? 
I've had to let Algernon shift for himself lately, so I hope he hasn't been giving mine hair a problem. Mine hair? Mine hair is taken to spending a lot of time across the street. It seems uh, Rudolph Wharton is a cat lover. <clears throat> you still don't like the man, I take it. How can you not like a man who looks like Cary Grant on The Late Show? Like they say, you can't judge a book. The man's no good. My mother died in his rest home, you know. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. The place is okay, isn't it? I mean, good doctors, good care. And bloody expensive. But I'm not saying anything against the doctors. It's Rudolph Wharton I blame. That doesn't seem fair. Well, you don't know the man like I do. You don't know what he did to his wife. What do you mean? What did he do to his wife? Well, she was a Mayhew, you know. There was Ernestine and her sister Eulalie, and their father, Clarence Mayhew, owned half this town in his day. You mean that's how Wharton acquired all his property? Exactly. By marrying Ernestine Mayhew. But there's nothing wrong with that. It's what happened to Ernestine Mayhew that I'm talking about. She was a gay, lively thing until she married that one. Then she changed. Changed? How? She changed completely. She became quiet and somber. Quiet and somber as a grave. Celine had given up and gone to bed. But then I spied the shade of a colored TV, ghosts moving in a box through the living room window. I got out of my car and moved slowly up the walk, keeping a careful eye on the surrounding shrubbery. It was so dark I couldn't see where the doorbell was, so I knocked. Mrs. Celine? Mrs. Celine? Mrs. Celine. No. No. Please. Dolly. Dolly, I can't see you. Something moved on the floor. A sifting of shadows. I felt along the wall, found a switch, and flicked it. The hall light came on, and I saw her. Dolly Celine lying on the floor, dark splotches on her face and arms, bruises and blood. Blood redder than her hair. The telephoner. He came. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense. A die in the country. I'm Rod Serling, and this is 
the zero hour. Listening to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Tobias Wells' A Die in the Country was adapted for radio by Shirley Gordon. Peter Marshall is Newt. Susan Strasberg is Brenda. And Andrew Duggan is the chief. Featured in the cast are Forrest Lewis as the captain, Janet Waldo as Gloria, Ken Smith as Wharton. Marvin Miller as Arlen, Virginia Gregg as Dolly, and Mary Wicks as Mercy. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To the Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday... The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tobias Wells' neo-gothic tale of small-town terror. A die in the country... Starring Peter Marshall, Susan Strasberg, and Andrew Duggan. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. Severson found being a big city detective a full-time job. His home life suffered, so he moved with his expectant wife, Brenda, to the serenity of the country, the quiet suburban community of Wellesley. But since that time, the Seversons have found their new life of expectant tranquility marred by a succession of bizarre events. A prominent townsman has been plagued by a series of poison pen letters, the women of the town have been methodically harassed by a rash of obscene telephone calls. 
Then, Newt Severson, responding to a neighbor's frightened plea for help, finds the attractive young widow, Dolly Celine, lying bruised and bleeding on the floor. For Newt Severson, life in the country is hardly the picnic it was made out to be. A die in the country continues after this message. I called police headquarters and told them to send out a car and an ambulance. And I covered Dolly's bruised body with a blanket and applied an ice pack to her swollen face. I asked her what happened. It was the telephoner. He came to the door. I thought it was you. And you let him in? No. I was just coming down the stairs and he pushed the door open. I thought it was locked, but it must not have been. Did he say anything? He said... I said, don't be afraid. You remember me, Dr. Venable. Then what? I screamed. And he came up the stairs after me. He grabbed me. And he threw me down. Hey, look, look I, I've called the police and an ambulance is coming. Just lie quiet, quiet. The car must have scared him off. He ran out the back. Oh, Newt. Thank you. I didn't want to move Dolly in case there were any broken bones, so I just comforted her the best I could until the police came. She didn't say any more until the lights of the cruiser swept up to the house. Then she mumbled something I, I couldn't make out. I, I leaned closer. terrible. What did you say, Dolly? Dolly, I, I couldn't hear you. I said I must. As I saw it, the Dolly Celine incident made the whole thing more baffling. The man had come out in the open making a rash attack. Up to this time, he'd been methodical and anonymous. The same as the writer of Rudolph Wharton's poison pen letters. In fact, I'd even considered that they could be one and the same person. A far-fetched thought, maybe, but, but again, anything's possible to a cop. The next time mine hair wandered across the street, I decided to pick up my rain check on Wharton's earlier offer of that drink. I'm afraid I don't quite understand your interest in this nasty business of mine, Severson. Oh, I, I know it's none of my affairs, sir. I just guess it's a case of once a cop, always a cop. I mean, why would anyone accuse you of something that could be so easily disproved? I wouldn't know, Severson. You tell me. It would be far more reasonable if your wife had, say, uh, gone on a trip around the world where she couldn't be reached. Then it would be hard for anyone to find out if she were dead or alive. Well, what makes you look for, for reason in a person of this sort? I would also think you might have some ideas to who it might be. Well, if I have my suspicions, Severson, perhaps I wish to keep them to myself. Then you do have. Who is it, Mr. Wharton? <laughs> you were right. Once a cop, always a cop. Very well. Since you're so persistent, I'll tell you a little about the young man. Young man? He's someone who was very fond of my wife. She was very kind to him. They spent a lot of time together. And I rather imagine she misses her a great deal. In his warped mind, he undoubtedly blames me for her departure. I don't understand why you haven't made this conjecture to the police. Look, Severson, I don't want to get the boy in trouble. Boy, someone who saw your wife regularly. It wouldn't be the boy next door, would it, Greg Farley? 
Well, he's he's a difficult boy. I know his parents are quite upset about him. He hardly communicates with them at all. But he talked to your wife. Ernestine had a way about her. She encouraged him, listened to him. I couldn't understand her taking the time with him that she did, but uh, perhaps it was only because she didn't have any children of her own. He isn't attending school currently, I understand. No, just roars around on that motorbike of his, mostly. There was plenty of time to buzz over to Natick, where the letters have all been postmarked. I suppose so. If someone were trying to build a case against him, which you may be, but I'm not. I really should be going, Mr. Wharton, and as you suggested from the start, none of this is really my affair. I appreciate your concern, however, Mr. Severson. Thank you, and thanks for the drink, Mr. Wharton. I didn't know what Wharton's game was, and at the moment, I didn't particularly care. I wanted to do some thinking about young Greg Farley. Both his parents worked. He was alone during the day, a dropout from school with time on his hands, time to write crank letters or to make dirty phone calls. Even one from the high school where his sister went? Hmm. I found myself wondering if the police had been able yet to get any description of the assailant from Dolly Celine. I dropped by the hospital just in time to join in the interrogation. My friend Dennehy was in charge. We were told to take it easy. She's uh, still pretty shaken up. Oh, I can believe it. Oh, Newt, it's you. How nice of you to come and see me. I'm afraid we're here officially, Mrs. Celine. We uh, want to ask you a few questions. Oh, yes, of course, Lieutenant. Sergeant. And now, what we would like most of all is for you to give us an accurate description of your assailant. Oh, but I didn't really see him. You didn't see him? Well, no, not very well. I mean, it was dark outside. It was only the light from the television in the house. He just burst in the door and came at me. I only remember the vague outline of a man. Oh, it was terrible. Now, uh, Mrs. Selena, please, try to think. You must be able to tell us something. Was he tall, short, young, or old? Uh, young, I think. Yes, I'm sure he was young from the way he moved. And rather tall. He, he looked very tall when he came toward me, even though I was on the stairs. Mm. And uh, what else would you say, uh, fat or thin? Oh, no, not fat. No, not at all. Quite thin. Then you would describe him as a young man, tall and thin. Mm. Is that correct, Mrs. Selene? Yes, that's correct. But I guess that isn't much to go on, is it, Sergeant? It's a start. I didn't say anything to Danae yet, but it was something to go on. It wasn't much of a description, but what there was of it fit Greg Farley like a kid-skin glove. Danae, I was just wondering... Have you ever had anything to do with a kid named uh, Greg Farley? Oh, you mean the Farleys across the street from you? Yeah. Well, we've called on him and his parents once or twice for one thing or another. You got some reason to think Greg Farley could be our man or boy? Nothing really concrete. And to tell you the truth, his mother's become quite a good friend of my wife. So I hope the boy's in the clear. 
But you think we should check on him, like uh, finding out his whereabouts the night of Mrs. Celine's attack? Yeah, I do. It was the very next day that my partner, Parks, and I were sent out to an auto dealer's on Commonwealth. A young man had brought in a 1970 Eldorado for resale, giving the salesman a registration slip made out to Harold Rooney with a Joy Street address. The dealer had become suspicious and stalled off the seller, offering him cash for the car if he came back in the afternoon. Meanwhile, the dealer had the police check on Harold Rooney of Joy Street. They talked to his wife. Rooney was at his job at Dynalab Data Processing. The police called him with the suggestion that he look to see if his car was where he left it that morning. It wasn't. So, Parks and I staked out the dealership, hoping the car thief would be lured back by that cash sale bait. Late in the afternoon, a sleek, royal blue El Dorado glided to a stop in front of the office. I got up and walked out with Parks, ready to apprehend the driver as he got out of the car. When he did... I found myself looking squarely into the face of Greg Farley. A young face, despite the hair and the beard. I felt sorry. Sorry for him, for his family, for all the kids who get into trouble with the cops. And their families who don't know what to do about them. He glared up at me and with all the venom he could muster, spit out the only word that was in his head at that moment. Pig! I tried not to let what Greg Farley said bother me, but it did. I heard it over and over and over on the long bumper-to-bumper drive back to Wellesley that evening. But I forgot about it as soon as I got home. Something smells wonderful. That's a roast, or it was an hour ago. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. Something happened today that you'd better know about. This afternoon, I arrested Greg Farley. Oh, Newt. I know, I know. I, I hope Gloria's going to be able to understand it's my job. Even when it comes to friends and neighbors. But wh- what did he do? Couldn't you... He was trying to sell a stolen car. Oh, dear. Poor Gloria. W- what do you think will happen to him? I don't know. It depends. He's over 17, no juvenile, but he's not 21 either. First offense? Might get probation. Oh, I, uh... I think I ought to go over and talk to Gloria. Don't you? No. I think I ought to. Hello, Delilah. Is your mother home? Nope. Your father? He's not here either. Why don't you ask if my brother's home? Hmm. And you know what happened today? That my brother got arrested. And you're the big man who did it? Yes, I know that. He was trying to sell something that didn't belong to him. That's against the law, and I'm a policeman. You don't have to be. You could make false teeth like my old man. I don't always like my job, but I'm not ashamed of it either. What would they do to my brother? I really don't know. Is that where your mother and father are in Boston, seeing what they can do? Oh, they don't care what happens to Greg. The Wellesley cops are trying to pin something else on him, too. I suppose you don't know anything about that, Mr. Detective. Do you? I know my brother isn't a freak that's been making those dirty phone calls or beating up women or writing threatening letters to anybody. How do you know? I mean, how do you know for sure? Because I know my brother... Suppose, suppose you tell me about your brother, Delilah. I'd really like to hear about him. He's, uh, he's just a really neat guy, that's all. You really like Greg a lot? 
I know a lot of girls don't like their brothers. But Greg and me are really close. We always have been. I know him better than anybody. And I know he couldn't do any of those things they're trying to say he did. They're only questioning him about them. Why, because he has long hair and a beard? The cops have always been down on Greg just because he's done a couple little things. Like once he spray-painted some street signs with a peace symbol. The facing public property is against the law. He cleaned up the signs afterwards. Well, the cops made them. But then they came right after him again for something else. Why did Greg drop out of school when he did? Because he just didn't care anymore. Was it about the same time that Mrs. Wharton, next door, moved away? I suppose you've been listening to what they say about that, making it into something dirty. They? Who? My folks, of course. People with dirty minds. Mrs. Wharton was the only person Greg could really talk to besides me. And then my mother screams at him about it one day, telling him it was wrong, that he was almost a man now, and it didn't look right. Then she even asked him right out just what he and Mrs. Wharton did all the time they spent together. Greg went up in his room and threw up. I heard him. He actually got sick? Yeah. He does that when something really upsets him. Like the night we both found out. Found out? Found out what? About our folks and their sick friends. What they do for entertainment. Only they call it group therapy. Do you think Greg is acting the way he is going out and stealing cars and getting arrested just to get back at your folks for something? What do you think? How would you feel if you were Greg or me? And you found out your parents' idea of fun and games with their best friends was wife-swapping. I had plenty of food for thought the next time Brenda and I found ourselves in the company of the Farleys and their friends. Greg Farley remained in jail, waiting out his hearing on the car theft charge, and was still being questioned about the letters and the phone calls. Harlan Farley had the men off on a corner for his latest repertoire of dirty stories, and I saw my chance to talk to Gloria Farley alone. I didn't know whether or not she knew anything about my conversation with her daughter, but I thought she ought to. You mean Delilah actually carried on a conversation with you? That's more than she does with her father or me. Well, she was very concerned about her brother. Well, they were always very close. I guess they still are. Yes, I'd say so. Well, we're all concerned about him, but what are we to do... He certainly won't listen to anything I say. He doesn't even hear me. Have you thought about some kind of counseling? I've thought about it. A good deal, in fact. But Arlen won't allow it. He says he sowed some wild oats in his time and came out all right. He insists Greg will outgrow it. I'm afraid he's much more apt to get into deeper trouble. Newt, they've told us they're questioning Greg about those awful phone calls. Yes, they are. Do you think it could be possible? I'm his mother. I can't think that. But how do I know? He swears he's innocent, but how can you believe a boy who strikes his father, swears that his mother goes out and gets himself arrested for stealing cars? Gloria, this isn't easy for me to bring up, but I think it's only fair to tell you Delilah feels the reason her brother has gone off the deep end the way he has is, well, it's because... Because of Mrs. Wharton leaving town. I don't want to admit it, but I suppose that's it. No. No, not that. Well, what then? And whatever it is, 
why haven't they told their father and me about it? Gloria, it seems your children have somehow found out about the kind of recreation that you and your husband indulge in with your friends. She stared at me for a full moment, her face gone ashen. Then suddenly, without another word, she turned away and left the room. I didn't see her the rest of the evening. Newt, I I don't understand. I went to look for Gloria when we left, and she was in the powder room just sitting there. I asked her what was wrong, and she just cut me off, told me to leave her alone. Do you think she was all right? I don't know. I I told Arlen, and he went into her, but what happened? I I saw you talking to her just before then. Well, uh, we were just talking about Greg. I guess she got upset. Why? Did you say something to upset her? I don't know. Perhaps I did. You, uh... You weren't being the policeman with her, I hope. Now, you don't really think Greg Farley can be the obscene telephoner, do you? Brenda, if you want to know the truth, I'm the one who first suggested to the police that Greg Farley might just be their man. Man, he's just a boy. How could that be? And whatever made you think so? Nothing substantial, but a number of little things, they they could add up. Oh, you know what you are. A bulldog. The perfect police mentality. Once you get hold of a piece of something, no matter how small and flimsy it may be, you never let go. You chew it to bits. I see nothing so terrible about answering questions, clearing the air. Greg Farley will either prove he's innocent or guilty. And either way, I'll probably lose the only friend I've made in Wellesley. That wasn't exactly true either. But I didn't argue the point. There was Mercy Bird. I thought of her as a friend, and I knew Brenda did, too. An eccentric one, perhaps, but a friend we both liked. And we were both concerned early that next morning when Mercy showed up on our doorstep, looking quite distraught. What's wrong, Mercy? It's Algernon. He's gone. Gone? Wandered off or been dog-napped. There's no knowing. All I know is he isn't anywhere to be found. No, 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 don't worry. Mm-hmm. You and Brenda keep looking here. I'll, I'll take the car and scout around. We'll find him, honey. Well, I hope so. He's an innocent abroad, you know. He's not used to traffic or strangers. <gasps> Poor Algie. I drove around but didn't see any sign of him. <laughs> he was too big to miss. Finally, I turned onto Route 9, where the speed limit was up to 60. If he'd wandered this far, it would be poor algae, all right. My eyes scanned the pavement, worried that any minute I might see a large, shaggy shape motionless in the middle of the street. I was glad to get off the highway and circle back by the shopping center. There was a cluster of kids in front of Friendly's ice cream parlor. I slowed down and caught sight of a big dog in the center of a circle of children. <laughs> it was old Algernon happily sharing somebody's strawberry ice cream cone. <laughs> Come on, fella. Come on. Come on, boy. The party's over. Come on now. I've come to take you home. Algie. Come on, Algernon. I parked in Mercy's driveway, and Algernon led me up to a side door that was standing ajar. I could see by the cluttered table with a typewriter on it that this was probably where Mercy spent most of her time. But right now, apparently, she was still out looking for the truant algae. Mercy! Mercy! I figured the best thing to do would be close the dog safely in the house and then go find Brenda and Mercy to tell them. 
I stepped into the room to lure Algernon through the door. And I saw the scissors and glue and scattered cut-up newspaper. Pasted on a sheet of paper laying on the table were three words. It was murder. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense. A die in the country. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. to the Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Tobias Wells' A Die in the Country was adapted for radio by Shirley Gordon. Peter Marshall is Newt. Susan Strasberg is Brenda. And Andrew Duggan is the chief. Featured in the cast are Virginia Gregg as Dolly, Ken Smith as Wharton, Jerry Hausner as Dennehy, Catherine Burns as Delilah, Janet Waldo as Gloria, and Mary Wicks as Mercy. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer, Rochelle Sherman, associate producer, and Kim Weiskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To the Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, The Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. This week, Tobias Wells' neo-gothic tale of small-town terror. Die in the country... Starring Peter Marshall, Susan Strasberg, and Andrew Duggan. In Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour.
Thus, our mobile society, the act of physically moving one's family from one town to another, is a relatively simple matter. The problem is leaving old friends behind and making new ones. Detective Newt Severson and his wife Brenda, having recently moved from Boston to the small suburban town of Wellesley, have begun making those new friends. However, they find themselves becoming more deeply involved in a web of intrigue and violence among their neighbors. While on an innocent errand to return a lost dog to their next-door neighbor, Mercy Bird, Newt has come upon startling evidence which tends to incriminate some another of their new Wellesley friends. City living was never quite like this. A die in the country resumes after this word. All I admit to do was let the dog in. But I found scissors, glue, and three words cut from old newspapers to make a bitter accusation. It was murder. So, Mercy Bird was the sender of the poison pen letters being received by Rudolph Wharton. Note. What are you doing in here? I, uh, found Algernon. It looks as if that's not all you found. Why, Mercy... Why have you been sending these letters to Rudolph Wharton? Because it's true. The man murdered his wife. What makes you even think that? I don't think it. I know it. Don't ask me how. I just do. Then you've no evidence, no proof. Not the kind you mean. But I know the kind of man Rudolph Wharton is, and I know the kind of person Ernestine Mayhew was. She wouldn't just go away like that. He killed her, I tell you. Mercy, making such a terrible accusation against a man with no proof is going to land you in serious trouble. Why doesn't somebody look for proof? If a man like Wharton wanted to get rid of a body, he'd find a way. Has anybody dug up his cellar, unlocked his trunks, examined his flower beds? Uh, Mercy, you've been writing too many mystery stories. You're a detective, aren't you? You know damn well murders are committed and bodies are hidden all the time. The only difference is nobody's looking for this one. Nobody is looking for Ernestine Mayhew's body because the woman is alive and well, Uh, living with her sister in California. Chief Torrance has a letter from her, and he also talked to her on the telephone. Oh, then the police do suspect something. Oh, no, no. They acted on those letters, of course, to prove they were a hoax. A hoax? That's exactly what Rudolph Wharton is pulling off. Don't you see? See what? Uh, Oh... Of course. You you don't know about Ernestine and her sister. What about them? That they look and sound so much alike. Could almost be twins, those two. How better was Eulalie that the chief got the letter from and talked to on the telephone? That might work for one of your books, but how could Rudolph Wharton persuade Eulalie Mayhew to masquerade as her sister? Then she'd know that he had killed her. Perhaps she does know. And is just going along with it? There's something else you don't know about the Mayhew sisters. They were both in love with Rudolph Wharton. Oh, Newt, you're not going to the police about Mercy, are you? Honey, I have to do something. This kind of thing just can't be ignored. You don't suppose that there's a chance she's right about Rudolph Wharton? That he's a murderer? Now who's looking at our neighbors like a cop? Why would Mercy do this? Well, we know she's a little eccentric, and I suppose as a mystery writer, she may be inclined to let her imagination run amok. Mm, Living all alone in that creepy house. You know, there's hardly any furniture inside. Me, from what I could see. Keeping her mother in that rest home must have been very expensive. Hmm, yeah. 
In a rest home owned by the rich Rudolf Wharton, no less. But she shouldn't be put in jail just for harboring a grudge. Sending threatening letters is more than just harboring a grudge. It's all going to depend on Wharton. I mean, what he wants to do about it after he finds out it's mercy. Maybe he'll be charitable and not press charges. Are you going to talk to him or the police? I don't know. There's some sniffing around I want to do first. Oh, darling. If anybody can help Mercy, you can. I think I'm glad I'm married to a bulldog after all. My first stop was the town clerk's office in Town Hall, a redstone castle on top of a hill. I didn't think it wise to chance Rudolph Wharton's finding out that I'd been checking for information on his wife. So I made up a story to tell the clerk that wangled me a look at the alphabetical file under M. It took only a quick flip of the cards for me to get what I'd come for. Eulalie Mayhew's present address in California, where ostensibly both sisters could be found. My next stop was the public library. With luck in a small town like this, I'd find copies of the Wellesley High School annuals there. I did. Should be the 40s, I figured. And I was right. The summer class of 1941 for Ernestine, 42 for Eulalie. I placed the pictures of the two sisters side by side. Heart-shaped faces, light eyes, identical blonde hairdos of the pompadour and pageboy style of the time. Even looking closely at them as I was doing, it was hard to see the difference between them. But did they sound alike as well, I wondered. I got a telephone number for Eulalie Mayhew from the long-distance operator. Riverside, California. Information. Miss Eulalie Mayhew? Yes, it is. Who's this? Hi, Lester Martin, Wellesley High, class of 41. Do you remember me? I don't believe I knew you. I didn't graduate until a year after that. Oh, I know. Your sister Ernestine was in my class. <laughs> I understand she's staying there with you right now. I is that right? Yes, she is. Well, it's Ernestine I really called to talk to. It's quite important. Uh, is she there? Yes, she's here. Just a moment. Hello? Uh, Eulalie? No, this is Ernestine. Ernestine Mayhew. How are you? This is Lester Martin. Long time no see. Yes, my, my sister told me you were on the phone. I'm afraid it's been longer than I'd care to admit. I'll bet you're wondering why I called. <laughs> to be honest, I, I don't have the faintest notion... Well, we're uh, planning a class reunion, Thanksgiving Day, the old football rivalry, you know. It'll be a real homecoming. Can you make it? Well, I don't know. I've been thinking of perhaps making a trip abroad soon. Oh? Who else is going to be at the reunion? Oh, Clarence Masters, Nella Mawinney. I was given only the M's to call, so I don't know about the others. Then you, uh, you wouldn't know if Patsy Oliver is coming. Patsy, no. She's not on my list. I'll have to think about it. I'll send you a letter with all the details, uh, just as soon as they're worked out, of course. Thank you. You're welcome, Ernestine. Nice talking to you. <laughs> and you know something? What? 
You and your sister sure sound exactly alike. Well, you must have forgotten, Lester. We always did. My phone call to California gave me nothing to go on. But for some reason, I suddenly thought of an old friend in Los Angeles. A private gumshoe named Jess Dyer, who I knew would do me a favor. A little stakeout at the Mayhew house and maybe some discreet checking with the neighbors. Meanwhile, I decided to drop in for another little off-the-cuff chat with Chief Torrance down at the Wellesley Police Station. I was wondering, when you talked to Mrs. Wharton, what did you ask her? Uh, did you find out when exactly she left Wellesley and how she got to California? Anything like that? Well, I didn't interrogate her, if that's what you mean. No reason to. All I needed to know was that she was alive. I suppose so. Only... What are you getting at, Severson? <sighs> Nothing, probably. <laughs> My wife says I'm a bulldog with a police mentality. <laughs> I hope you don't have the idea that I didn't check thoroughly just because it was Wharton. No, 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 I wasn't thinking that. There have been people in this town from time to time who've tried to buy me, but they've learned quick enough that I'm not their boy. I can tell that. Okay, I just wanted to set things straight, in case. Because I'm getting the notion that you've got an itch. An itch? That's what I call it when it happens to me. An itch I can't scratch keeps me up night sometimes. A feeling that something's out of kilter, off the mark. Yeah. I guess maybe that's what I got. And I gather you're thinking maybe it's a place I can reach that you can. Maybe it is. What can you tell me about the Mayhew sisters, for instance? I, I hear they look and sound a lot alike. Well, that's true enough, especially in their younger days when they dressed alike, wore their hair the same way and everything. Later on, they didn't do that anymore, of course. I also heard that at one time, at least, they were both in love with Rudolph Wharton. Yeah, I suppose they were. That'd be back in their younger days, too, before Wharton settled on Ernestine. I remember when my wife and I used to go to the steakhouse in those days. We'd see the three of them, young Wharton, as handsome then as he is now, with the Mayhew girls. One on each arm. Both of them looking up at him like he was God. Is there anybody in town, anybody you can think of that... Ernestine Mayhew would be likely to keep in touch with, no matter where she is? Yep, one person. Constance Giordi. Taught both the Mayhew girls. But Ernestine apparently always felt something special for her. She's the first person I tried to check when Wharton started getting those letters. Yeah? You notice I said tried. I asked her if she heard from Ernestine, and all she said was, wherever Ernestine was, was Ernestine's own business, and I should mind my own. Where does she live? Over in Back Bay on Oak Street in a little house Ernestine gave her, Scott Free. She's the one to talk to about Ernestine, all right. But I don't envy you trying. I caught a faint movement of the lace curtain across the glass panel door. And I rang again. Go away, whoever you are. I'm not going to, Miss Giordi. I need to see you. Are you anyway? I never saw you before. I know. I haven't lived here in Wellesley long. I'm a detective from Boston, and I want to speak to you about Ernestine. Uh, Ernestine Mayhew? I just want to know one thing from you, whoever you are. Is Ernestine in any kind of trouble? I don't know. That's what I want to talk to you about. Well, then come in. Whatever it is, it isn't any business of the neighbors. I stepped inside into a room that smelled of oriental rugs and furniture polish. Constance Giordi peered into my face with eyes like a pair of shiny black marbles. In the first place, you haven't even told me your name. 
Oh, I'm sorry. It's Severson. Newt Severson? My wife and I moved here recently. Our house is directly across the street from Rudolph Wharton. Hmm. I've nothing to say about Rudolph Wharton. My only concern is Ernestine. Now, what do you have to tell me of her? It's more what you have to tell me. I want to know if you've heard from her since she left Wellesley. Oh, I was already asked that question once. I know. Chief Torrance told me. Well, then I presume he told you my answer. It still applies. Miss Giordi, do you have any way of knowing that Ernestine Mayhew is all right? All right? What do you mean by that? If you could tell me that you've heard from her, but then... But I can't tell you that, Mr. Severson, because I haven't. Not a word. Isn't that unusual? I'm told you're the one she's most likely to be in touch with. If she chose to, but there's no reason she should. But doesn't it seem strange to you that she apparently left town without telling anyone that she was leaving? Oh, but she didn't do that, Mr. Severson. She told me. She did? Of course. She telephoned and told me she was leaving Rudolph Horton at last. Well, I told her. Good riddance. I hope she'd leave him the way she found him, without a penny. Then Ernestine knew of your dislike for her husband. Oh, naturally. I spoke against the man from the first moment she and Eulalie took up with him. Eulalie was in love with him, too? And I told Ernestine she should let Eulalie have him. Eulalie would have been a better match for him. She wouldn't have let the man walk all over her the way Ernestine allowed him to. Then Ernestine and Eulalie were not as alike as they appear to be in the photographs? Oh, they only looked alike. And sounded alike? Well... Yes, yes, that was strange. One might swear that their voices were identical. Then someone might talk to one of them on the telephone and not be certain whether it was Ernestine or her sister. Yes, that's true. In that case, Miss Giordi, the only evidence we have that Ernestine Mayhew was safely in California is this letter. Chief Torrance received it in answer to his inquiry. Mr. Severson, this letter was not written by Ernestine Mayhew. It wasn't? Are you sure? I'm positive. Now, even I couldn't always tell them apart by their appearance. Often, I'd have to look to see which one of them was speaking. But as their school teacher, I learned to distinguish their handwriting. I am positive. This letter was written by Eulalie Mayhew. I felt a chill when the old woman told me with such certainty that the letter had not been written by Ernestine, but by her sister. Maybe Mercy Bird, with all her talk of murder, wasn't so far off base after all. But I knew about handwriting evidence in court. One expert verified a forgery, a second expert repudiated the testimony of the first. Although I wondered who would dare to repudiate Constance Giordi. I was in the mood now to have that chat with Rudolph Wharton regarding Mercy's imprudent, threatening notes. I had a feeling I was going to find Wharton inclined to be lenient. I found him in his office in a building that housed a bank, a pharmacy, and a department store, all belonging to Wharton, I presumed. He sounded even more tolerant than I'd expected. Oh, mercy. She never quite got over her mother's death. They were very close. Yes, I gather that. She blames me for it, as perhaps she's told you. You know, I've always thought that's strange. It's, it's natural enough to blame someone, the doctor of the fates, but... Uh, just because I happen to own the nursing home? Yes, that must be the reason for her sending you those letters. But why do you suppose she would accuse you of killing your wife? Well, she's always been fond of Ernestine, I think. Ernestine tolerated her. I suppose somehow she associated my wife's departure with the death of her mother. Two people she was fond of. Yes. 
I guess that's possible. She's inclined to be, um, eccentric. As I'm sure you've noticed, eccentric is putting it kindly. She's something of a character, all right. But harmless enough, I imagine. Then, are you going to press charges against her? No, I, I don't think that'll be necessary. That's very generous of you, considering the harassment she's caused you. Well, perhaps it might be well for her to see a psychiatrist. Uh, there's a good man at the hospital I could refer her to. I doubt that she has the money for that kind of treatment. Well, something could be worked out, I'm sure. Thank you, Mr. Wharton. You're being most considerate. I'm glad. As a matter of fact, my wife and I have become quite fond of Mercy Bird, and I wouldn't want to see her in any real trouble. By the way, Mr. Severson, I've had a call from my wife. You have? Yes. She was puzzling over a phone call she received. The caller identified himself as someone who'd been in high school with her, and uh, he invited her to a class reunion. What's puzzling about that? Someone's always trying to get up a high school class reunion. Of course. But then she asked the man if Patsy Oliver was coming, and he answered that he didn't know because she wasn't on the list. What's wrong with that? Well, Patsy Oliver was a very popular figure at Wellesley High in those years. I remember him well. Patsy was a nickname for Patrick. Oh. Well, I tell your wife not to worry. Memory plays tricks on people. We all know that. Don't we, Mr. Wharton? I wasn't worried about that little blunder I'd made. I was only wondering what kind of call Rudolph Wharton had really received. A puzzled call from Ernestine, his wife, as he said, or a worried call from Eulalie, his accomplice. I was really beginning to feel that it's Chief Torrance had talked about. Leaving Wharton's office, I threw caution out of the window by walking into the bank and making an inquiry about Ernestine Mayhew Wharton's account. I showed my Boston ID card, and after a long moment's hesitation, the bank official obliged. Well, yes, Mrs. Wharton has an account with us. A separate account of her own? That's right. I need to know what withdrawals Mrs. Wharton has made since January of this year. Oh, well, just a moment. That I'll have to check. Uh, you understand, of course, sir, this inquiry must be kept entirely confidential? Yes. Yes, of course. Just a moment. He picked up a telephone, and I wondered if he was checking with a bookkeeper or with Wharton. Mr. Severson. Yes. I must say it does seem rather odd, but Mrs. Wharton has made no withdrawals at all from her account since January. Chief Torrance wasn't going to like it. But I figured it was time for us to have another little talk. I was right. He didn't like it. Damn it, Severson. I don't need this can of worms. I don't need it at all. I can understand your position. And it seems to me everything you've dug up is still pure speculation. Even Constance Geordie's statement? She told me she'd swear on her family Bible that your letter ostensibly from Ernestine was actually written by you, Laley. That's the one thing I can't ignore. I'll give you that. Then the reasonable doubt is now on the side of Mercy Bird, don't you think? I suppose once you allow yourself to even consider the possibility of murder, town selectmen notwithstanding, you... Uh... Very well, Severson. Let's assume that we have a case and get on it. Yes, sir. Here's something to start with. After you brought up the subject, I checked out the passenger list on the flights out of Boston at the time of Ernestine Wharton's assumed departure. And? And Eve Wharton flew out of Boston bound for Los Angeles on January 10th. 
If it wasn't Ernestine, it was somebody else. Eulalie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, considering we're going along with this whole assumption, I suppose it could have been, although you'd think somebody around Wellesley would have seen her while she was here. They might have and thought it was Ernestine. If Eulalie were deliberately assuming her sister's identity. All right. And what we want to find out is... If there was a flight into Boston from L.A. sometime just before the 10th, it shows an E. Mayhew on the passenger list. Exactly. Yes? I'll put it through. Call for you, Severson. My wife, I... I told her I'd be here. You see, our babies do any time now. Then get on this phone, man, for heaven's sake. Hello? Hi, Brenda. Are you all right? When? I'll be right home. If it wasn't our baby, it was yours. Mine. You can forget Greg Farley. Your obscene caller's still on the loose. He just called my wife. Tomorrow at this time, rest your eyes and listen here to this week's continuing study in suspense. A die in the country. I'm Rod Serling, and this is The Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Tobias Wells, A Die in the Country, was adapted for radio by Shirley Gordon. Peter Marshall is Newt. Susan Strasberg is Brenda. And Andrew Duggan is the chief. Featured in the cast are Mary Wicks as Mercy, Edith Atwater as Eulalie, Paula Winslow as Miss Geordi, Ken Smith as Wharton, and Howard Culver as the banker. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher. It's now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in tomorrow and once again... Rest your eyes and listen here... To the Zero Hour. Hollywood Radio Theater. Every day at this time, Monday through Friday, a J.M. Colas Enterprises production, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents an unusual tale of mystery and suspense. Every week, Monday through Friday, the Hollywood Radio Theater presents... I'm Rod Serling. You're listening to The Zero Hour. Rest your eyes. Exercise your imagination. 
This week, Tobias Wells' neo-Gothic tale of small-town terror. A die in the country. Starring Peter Marshall. Susan Strasberg. And Andrew Duggan. Elliot Lewis's production of The Zero Hour. All that the Severson's wanted was to move away from Boston to a quiet little house in the country. And that's precisely what they did. However, there were a great many unexpected bonuses thrown into the bargain threatening letters, obscene phone calls, wife-swapping neighbors, a strange disappearance, and an accusation of murder. As Detective Newt Severson, with the reluctant cooperation of Wellesley Police Chief Torrance, presses for an investigation into the affairs of town selectman Rudolph Wharton, Wellesley's elusive, obscene telephone caller strikes again, this time with a call to Severson's young wife, Brenda while she's home alone, awaiting the impending birth of their first child. For Newt Severson, life in the country is about to explode and reverberate down to the very foundation of his existence. In a moment, the conclusion of a die in the country. But first, this word. I was furious with myself for not being home with Brenda at this crucial stage of her pregnancy. I was just caught up in this Wharton business, so when Brenda got that crank phone call, it just set me off. Never mind Rudolph Wharton and whether or not he did or didn't murder his wife. Let's get this damn phone freak out of circulation. Calm down, Severson. Just get on home to your wife. We're working on this telephone business. There's, uh, there's one thing, Chief. This puts young Farley in the clear about everything except that car theft charge. And he can probably be released to the custody of his parents pending his arraignment. They want it that way. I think maybe they will. I'll get back to you on the Wharton case as soon as I'm satisfied my wife feels okay. And I'll get on the airline's angle meanwhile. Oh, but um, will you do me a favor, Severson? Play this close until if and when we really have something. Yeah, I know. I know. Wait a minute. This call to Brenda gives us something new on the phone nut. What's that? He didn't work from the Wellesley directory this time. We're not in it. He must have gotten it from information then. No, no, he couldn't have. We have an unlisted number. That's what I've been wondering, too, Newt. How did he get our number? Did he address you by name? Yes, right away. He said, hello, Mrs. Severson. But you didn't recognize the voice at all? No, no, it it, it was deep and, oh, sort of suave sounding. Yeah, Dolly Celine called it sexy. Oh, well, I'm not Dolly Celine. I would have hung up on him right away, but I knew you'd want me to find out everything I could. Thanks, but I hope you didn't stick with that nut too long. I couldn't. It was just, oh, it was too much. I had to hang up. What time was this? Just before you called me? Yes, oh, about 4.30. Later than usual for him. I just wish I knew how he got our number. So do I. If we knew that, it might tell us who he is. The thing to do is make a list of everybody who knows our number or anybody who's been inside the house where they could have seen it on the phone. That could have been... Oh, even any of the workmen who've been here. Exactly. Even that sweet little old man who hung our new wallpaper? 
darling, I'm a suspicious cop, remember? That sweet little old man could very well have a sexy telephone voice. What a hornet's nest we'd found ourselves in with this innocent little move out into the country. Maybe Brenda was right. Other people seem to live out their lives without coming up against murder, robbery, assault, and heaven knows what. I was beginning to wonder myself, did the crime attract the cop, or did the cop attract the crime? It didn't matter. At the moment, I considered myself on a possible murder case, and I figured by now my contact in California had had time enough to check out that house and its neighbors in Riverside. Newt, find out anything for me? I don't know, but for what it's worth, here's the rundown. The neighbors don't seem to know anything about a sister, but then they say Eulalie Mayhew isn't much of the neighborly type. You mean her sister could be there, and they wouldn't know it, huh? That was the impression they gave me. But none of them could say that they'd seen both sisters together? No, I didn't get that from anybody, but... For your information, at the moment, there's nobody living in the house. What do you mean, nobody? Whether there was one sister or two, they're not there now. The next morning at headquarters, I passed Dyer's information on to Chief Torrance. So, what do you think it means? I'd like to find out from Wharton what it means, but I don't want to flush him out at this point. Maybe Eulalie Mayhew has already flown the coop. No, 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 it wouldn't make sense. I mean, Wharton still needs her around, right? Oh, by the way, does Eulalie have any of her father's holding? No, Ernestine was the old man's favorite. Eulalie was left just with an annuity. More than adequate, I understand, but it was a definite slight. Mm. That gives Eulalie a bit of a motive, too, doesn't it? Mm, Not for murder, I shouldn't think. But I suppose it could weaken her resistance against aiding and abetting. Any luck on that check of the airlines? Not yet. There's a chance she wouldn't have used her own name, of course. Yes? Oh, yes, of course. Tell him to come in. Wharton's on his way in. Mr. Wharton, how are you? Hello, Chief. Uh, Severson, they told me you were in here, and I was hoping to talk to both of you. Well, what's up, Mr. Wharton? Well, for one thing, I've just learned that my wife has left the country. Oh? She's gone on an extended trip. I don't know for how long. Hawaii, the Orient, perhaps? Around the world? I don't know, Mr. Severson. My sister-in-law tells me she wasn't certain. In fact, Eulalie is quite concerned about Ernestine. In what way? Well, it seems our separation has been weighing heavily on her. She's been very depressed. And now, suddenly, she's just packed up and gone. Eulalie's quite distraught. I'm sorry to hear that, Mr. Wharton. Any way we can be of help? No, no, there's, there's nothing even I can do. We're just hoping Ernestine will be in touch with one of us soon. It wouldn't be too difficult to locate her, I imagine, if we get on her quickly enough. No, I I wouldn't want her to think I was keeping tabs on her. She wanted her freedom. I think maybe a trip is a good idea for her at this time. Yeah, probably is. Frankly, at the moment, it's Eulalie I'm concerned about. I didn't think she should be alone out there worrying about her sister, so I suggested that she come here, back to Wellesley, for a while. Well, now, it'll be nice to see Eulalie Mayhew again. You're going to enjoy meeting her, Severson. She's quite a woman. 
Yes. I'd like very much to meet her. Uh, you'll have the opportunity. That's why I'm here. You'll both come, won't you? Come? Come where? To my house, Saturday night. I'm throwing a little party for you, Laley. To uh, welcome her home. <laughs> Brenda's only concern when I told her about Wharton's party was which of her maternity dresses looked the least like a maternity dress. My concern was that I had Dr. Abrams' number in my pocket. It would be just like our stubborn son and heir to put in his belated appearance just as I was closing in on a murder. I wonder if he's invited any of the other neighbors. Mercy Bird wouldn't come if he asked her. Mercy's only come out of her house long enough to give Algernon a quick walk lately. She must be busy writing a new book. Mm, as long as she's not writing any more letters. What about the Farleys? Do you think they'll be there? I doubt it. I gather the only neighborliness between the Whartons and the Farleys was Ernestine Wharton's friendship with young Greg. Mm, it's a shame she isn't around to help him now. Maybe not. Maybe his own parents will come through for him this time. Is Greg still in jail? No. His mother brought him home this afternoon. Oh, no. Doesn't it scare you? Pretty soon we're going to be parents. Mm, I don't know. Junior is sure taking his time about getting here. I don't blame him, considering all that's been going on. Well, tell him to hold off at least a few more hours. I don't think Rudolph Wharton's cocktail party is going to be any place to have a baby. Saturday couldn't come fast enough for me. Call it my suspicious cop nature, but I was certain the party would be a showdown. I spent any free time I had at home nursing along the ivy I'd planted around the railing of our porch. I was hoping to catch a glimpse, a sneak preview of Eulalie Mayhew. But I never saw a sign of her, or Wharton for that matter. Finally... Ah. Hello, Severson. Uh, you know my wife? Uh, yes, of course. Good of you to join us, Mrs. Severson. Come in. I want you to meet you, Lely. Before he had led us halfway across the room, I saw her. Shining silver gold hair, a flawless skin, glowing under a golden California suntan. Eyes the color of pansies, a young girl's body in a sleek gold cocktail dress. So, that was you, Lely Mayhew. I found myself wondering if Ernestine, wherever she was, still looked like her sister. Ludy tells me you're a detective. That's right. Uh, Mr. Severson is with the Boston police, but it appears he's intrigued by our little transgressions in Wellesley as well. Uh, which reminds me, uh, I believe Chief Torrance has some news for you, Severson. He's right over there. A detective? A police chief? Well, it appears Rudy has himself surrounded by the law. What a lovely outfit you have on, Mrs. Severson. Thank you. Will this be your first? I left Brenda gazing enviously at Eulalie Mayhew's sylph-like figure and made my way across the room to see what Torrance had come up with. If it were the information we'd been after from the airlines, Wharton unwittingly may have just directed me toward his own undoing. Oh, Severson, you'll want to hear this. Dennehy called in a little while ago with quite a piece of news. Uh, concerning our genial host? No, not this time. It's the telephone nut. We've got him. Hallelujah! Are you sure? I mean, how did you find him? It was that list you had your wife make up that did it. You know, all the workmen who had been in your house since you moved in. Now, don't tell me it was the sweet little old man who owned the wallpaper. Nah, but you're close. Try the nice, clean-cut, all-American type who installed your telephone. A guy from the telephone company? 
<laughs> Why is it we never think of the obvious? Seems he just kind of blends into the woodwork. Nobody pays any attention to him. Hmm. And once he's done his job, you forget he was there. But when we went back and checked, we found him everywhere. And when Dennehy moved in on him in a cruddy little apartment over in Needham, there it was. A little yellow Wellesley directory and a raft of porno junk all over the place. Did he own up? To everything but the Dolly Selene attack, claims he never done any real harm to anyone. Just a talker, not a doer, according to him. Do you buy that? Denny, he does. He thinks the guy called her all right, but he never went near her. But then, how do you explain... I don't know. We're going to have to have another talk with Mrs. Selene. Chief, here comes Dennehy now. What's he doing here? I don't know, but he sure is in a hurry. I hope he doesn't knock anybody over. What is it, Dennehy? That piece of information you've been waiting for just came in, Chief. From the airline? You really hit the nail on the head, Newt. On January 9th, just the day before an E. Wharton flew out of Boston, an E. Mayhew flew in from L.A. Well, now, isn't that interesting? Uh-huh. I think maybe our host will find it much more stimulating than the usual cocktail party conversation. Don't you, Chief? <sighs> I didn't have to become a chief of police. I could have stayed just a happy flatfoot on a beat out in the boondocks. Times like this when I wish I had. I took pity on the chief and went to look for Wharton myself. I found him more or less where I expected, on the terrace in the shadows with a glint of gold lame beside him. Sorry to disturb you, Mr. Wharton, but something's come up about your wife. Rudy. Uh, What about my wife, Mrs. Everson? The uh, chief will explain. He and Dennehy are in the study. You can come too, Miss Mayhew, if you wish. Uh, Yes, of course. Has anything... Has anything happened to her? I have the feeling we'll all have an answer to that very soon. Despite Eulalie Mayhew's involuntary gasp and her alarmed look of a cornered doe, Wharton remained as unruffled as ever. I went on ahead alone to the study. A few moments later, they followed me in. Dennehy looked nervous in his uniform. I felt like our cat mine hair out stalking prey. Chief Torrance was less ferocious, so I let him begin. I'm sorry, Mr. Wharton, but several things have come up that we need to have explained. Well, that's all right, Chief. I can understand your position. Well, what sort of things? Well, for one, that letter we received from your wife confirming her whereabouts in California. Well, what about it? Well, we have it on good authority, very good authority, that it was not written by your wife at all. Really? That instead it was written by you, you lady. By me? But I... Never mind, you lady. You don't have to deny it. I'll explain. Oh, please do, Mr. Wharton. As a matter of fact, you did write the letter at my request. Why was that? Because Ernestine refused to. As far as I was concerned... She didn't care if I rotted in hell. You, uh, never indicated before that there was that much animosity between you and your wife, Wharton? Because I wanted to spare you, Laley. You see, the truth is, my wife was insanely jealous of her sister. Oh, that's something I never knew. Ernestine didn't seem the type. Oh, well, it was only where I was concerned. She constantly made the accusation that it was you, Laley, I really loved. You, Laley, I should have married. I see. Mr. Wharton, there's something else. We know that on January 10th, someone under your wife's name boarded a plane out of Boston for Los Angeles. That was my wife, Severson. 
Who else would it be? Eulalie? But Eulalie was in California at her house in Riverside. No, she wasn't. We have the evidence that Eulalie came here to Wellesley on January 9th. Rudy? If she did, Detective Severson, I know nothing about it. Rudy? Were you here, Eulalie? You should have taken me into your confidence. I might have been able to help you out of this. Rudy, what are you saying? I knew, of course, how much resentment toward my wife Eulalie has always felt since their father died, leaving a will that favored Ernestine. But I never thought Eulalie could be capable of taking any kind of cold revenge on her sister. That's not what happened. Horton, what are you trying to pull? You know very well Eulalie was here at the time of your wife's disappearance. It was at your request that she came. But that's impossible. I had nothing to do with it. I wasn't even here in Wellesley myself at that time. You weren't? I was out of town, in Virginia, attending a golf tournament. And I can account for every moment of my life. Look out, she's got my gun. Really, put that down. No. Oh, Oh, Rudy. Rudy. Why? I'm sorry. It's all my fault, Chief. Get the door, Dennehy. Keep everybody out. Right. Better call an ambulance, Newt. No reason to. Wharton's dead. It was all in the Wellesley newspaper. It was on the front page for weeks. A gradual piecing together of the facts. Ernestine Wharton had told her husband she was divorcing him. Reclaiming the titles to all of her properties and leaving him penniless. In a rage, Wharton had killed her. Killed her on the 7th of January. Greg Farley testified that he had spent most of January 6th in Ernestine Wharton's company. And January 8th was the day it was proven that Rudolph Wharton left Wellesley to attend the golf tournament in Virginia. Eulalie Mayhew arrived in Wellesley on the 9th, not knowing that her sister was dead. She maintained the stance at the trial. She swore she hadn't known and never saw the body. Oh, come now, Miss Mayhew. It certainly would be to your advantage to cooperate at this point and tell this court where the body of your sister, Ernestine Mayhew Wharton, lies buried. I don't know, I tell you. Remember, she was the victim of a cold, calculating murderer, Rudolph Wharton. Where is your poor sister now, Miss Mayhew? I don't know. I don't know. The trial went on and on, and the prosecution hammered away at Eulalie Mayhew about the location of her sister's body. The only thing in the next few weeks that was resolved was Brenda's condition. It was a seven-pound, eight-ounce boy. Do you think Eulalie Mayhew's telling the truth, Newt? Well, Denny does. And he's become something of an authority on hysterical women ever since he broke down that story of Dolly Celine's. Imagine, deliberately hurtling herself down the stairs to fake an attack just for attention. Looks like things have finally settled down in Wellesley. Nice and peaceful at long, long last. Well, everywhere except in this house. It's two o'clock in the morning and Leith George Severson's hungry. Whose turn is it, honey? Yours, but I'll do it. Gradually, Wellesley finally became the quiet little suburban town we thought it would be when we first moved in. Before Mine Hair came scampering into the house that first night with a dead squirrel in his mouth. 
But, of course, as Mercy Bird reminded us daily, no one had yet discovered where Rudolph Wharton had hidden his wife's body. Then one day, Brenda had just coaxed the baby into taking his afternoon nap. I was out on the porch trimming the ivy that was threatening to take over the house when... Honey, here comes Mercy, and she's got it. Whatever it is. I figured it out. I figured it out. I knew if I just kept working on it, I'd come up with the answer. You mean, you think you know where the body's buried? I don't think I know. I know. Now, listen to this. Wharton committed the murder on January 7th. On January 8th, I had the flu. It was a Friday. I remembered well. I just sat up in bed all day, looking out the window and watching the workmen. Workmen? Yeah, they had to delay digging earlier because the ground was frozen. But then there was an early thaw that first week in January, and they came and poured the cement that day, and I was watching them. January 8th. Now, Rudolph Walton carried his wife's body away during the night of January 7th, put it in the hole, covered it with dirt and stones. And the next morning, the workmen came and supplied a handy cement tomb. What workmen? Yeah, Mercy, what are you talking about? I'm talking about your house. When it's being remodeled, before you moved in. You can take my word for it. I know where the body is. We're standing on it. Ernestine Mayhew is buried right here, under your front porch. That concludes this week's production of The Zero Hour. Tobias Wells, a die in the country. Next week, we'll begin another exciting dramatization of a tale of mystery and suspense. We'll tell our story in five days, at the same time, Monday through Friday. So on Monday, rest your eyes and listen here to The Zero Hour. Theater's presentation of The Zero Hour, heard every weekday at this time. Rod Serling is your host. Tobias Wells, A Die in the Country, was adapted for radio by Shirley Gordon. Peter Marshall was Newt. Susan Strasberg was Brenda. And Andrew Duggan was the chief. Featured in the cast were Dick Whittington as Dyer, Kent Smith as Horton, Edith Atwater as Eulalie, Jerry Hausner as Dennehy, and Mary Wicks as Mercy. Zero Hour is produced and directed by Elliot Lewis. Jack Myers is executive producer. Rochelle Sherman, associate producer. And Kim Weisskopf, story editor. Music composed and conducted by Stanley D. Hoffman. The Hollywood Radio Theater theme was played by Ferranti and Teicher and is now available on United Artists Records and Tapes. This has been a J.M. Colas Enterprises production. Hugh Douglas speaking. Tune in Monday and once again. Rest your eyes and listen here. To the Zero Hour.